The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 840 from Monday, October 26, 2020. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, the show where you send in your tips your questions and your cool stuff found, we share them all. We share your tips. We share your questions. We answer your questions if we can. If not, we put it out to the community uh, and have you email us at feedback at MacGeekCab.com with the, you know, your help. And you can also send in your cool stuff found there. The goal is that when we get together, each and every one of us learns at least five New things, sponsors for this episode include Otherworld Computing and their Envoy Express. Fun stuff to learn about there. Nebbia and their Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower at uh, nebbia.com slash MGG, promo code MGG, and Plush Care at plushcare.com slash MGG, where you get a 30-day free trial of uh, telehealth. We'll talk more in detail about all of those shortly here. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are we today, Mr. John F. Braun? Oh, just uh, waiting for uh, waiting for him to deliver the goods. Right. So we are recording this earlier than we usually do. We usually record on Sunday and release Monday. This week we are recording Friday and releasing Monday. So, um, so the our our Apple goods, my iPhone 12 pro and John's new iPad air have uh, not yet arrived, but will be arriving maybe even while we record the episode and they'll be there for us afterwards. So, but for now we have some quick tips, unless there's anything else that you've got to, to share here, Mr. Braun. No, let's oh. go, man. All righty. Our first quick tip is from Brian who uh, says something that started out as a question, but now as a tip for the community, the other day, my iMac 2020 suddenly became rather quiet. The volume from the built-in speakers went from being great where about halfway volume was ideal to needing it to be turned all the way up to just barely hear anything. When I paired it with AirPods, the sound was fine at mid volume. I began searching on Apple's discussion boards and found a thread of my issue. I saw the solution. I tried it and it worked. The solution, reset PRAM or NVRAM, as we call it. Uh, reboot your Mac, hold down command option PR. And it can, that will, that, that resets a lot of the uh, sort of uh, uh, static or, or persistent settings is probably the best way to look at it. Things that, that uh, stay as system-wide hardware-based settings uh, past reboot and past shutdown. Uh, and certainly volume issues. That's one of those things, you know, before we had the SMC to reset, uh, the PRAM was a very, or NVRAM, I guess we call it now, although it's still command option PR, but, uh, but that is a popular uh, fix for a lot of weird things. So great reminder of the PRAM to fix a Mac, John. So pretty good, huh? Yeah. Now I'm trying to figure though, Okay. And if you're curious about what's in your uh NVRAM, Dave. Yes. Um uh if you go to the terminal and do NVRAM space dash P, it'll blast out all of the uh data that's stored in there. Uh, if you're curious. 
Really? So the yep. the user seeable data, right? But I don't think it has anything about. Oh no! Look at that. Okay, so interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it looks like it's plist ish at times. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's cool, man. I never had. Uh, I don't think I'd seen it that way before. I I know I've set certain NVRAM settings that way, but that's mm -hmm. interesting. Very cool, man. Nice. All righty. Uh, moving on to Roy, I believe. And Roy reminds us or tells us, uh, where are we here? He says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Roy says, I might be out of the loop entirely on this, but I never knew this existed, that you can sync the audio. You can control the sync of the audio for your Apple TV he says it fixed the audio delay I was getting between my Apple TV 4k and my AirPods pro. And he linked us to an Apple article that says that's titled set up wireless audio sync with Apple TV. And there is a process that you go through where you hold your phone near your TV. You wait for the sync notification. You continue. The Apple TV plays a tone. Your phone hears the tone. It now knows how long it takes for audio to get from what your Apple TV thinks it is sending out to what, say, your TV or soundbar or something like that is sending out. And that's super handy. So, yeah. So there you go. Um, all right. Thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? Yeah, I think a lot of receivers will do something similar. I remember when I was setting mine up at one point, it would have a mode where it, it would listen and then adjust the, uh, adjust the parameters to give you ideal sound. I don't know if your receiver does that. Oh, hmm. well, I mean, my Sonos gear does that. Sonos has TruePlay. So, yes, okay. in, a, okay. in a sense, yes. Uh, it, it does, but, um, but yeah, I had a receiver. I had, a, I think a Kenwood receiver that came even with a microphone that you would put like in the middle of the room where you were listening from and it would, you know, play sounds for 20 minutes and tune itself and all that, which was cool. And now it's great that you can just do it with your iPhone and walk around the room. So yeah, but yes, any of that tech is a good thing. And the home pod, um, does that on its own, it, it like self adjusts to the room, which I never quite understood how it could know, um, from the, from its vantage point, how you, how it would sound somewhere else. Like, the, the, like they must be doing some math and they must've modeled it and lots of machine learning and all of that stuff where, you know, when it sounds like this here, it sounds like that there and maybe listening for echoes and things like that. But it seems, it seems imperfect to to have the microphone at the source of the speaker as opposed to a microphone far away, you know, from where you're actually listening. But but maybe they can get close enough, and maybe that's all people care about. So yeah. All right. Uh, anything more on that before we move on, my friend? Moving on. Moving on. All right. Uh, let's see, moving on to Steven, we have two big Sur tips this week. Last week we were talking uh, about big Sur and how the clock in the menu bar cannot be moved or removed, I should say. So if you want to use 
the iStat menus clock in the menu bar, for example, as I was saying I did, well, then you would have two. Steven found a little bit of a hack. He said, I switched my clock to analog and moved it to the far right on the menu bar. I left the iStat menus clock as I had it before. It's not perfect, but it's no longer annoying. He's right. When you switch the clock to analog, it becomes a tiny little circle of an analog clock. And then you can have your digital clock of iStat menus right there. <clears throat> and as an added bonus for people like me whose brains think in analog time, when I see digital time, it actually like I, when I read digital time, I see it in my head as as, you know, analog time on a, uh, you know, on a circle. Don't ask me why, but this is how it, it happens. So the benefit of this is now I do have that analog clock. I can just look at quick and see the uh, the time. I never thought about doing it that way before. But um, but anyway, so there you go. Pretty fun. You running Big Sur yet as a as a thing, John? Mm, not really. Okay. <laughs> okay. I do have it on an external yeah. SSD. Yeah, yeah. I've been loving it on my laptop um, with with one exception that is actually the next thing on my list. But mostly this is just, you know, learning about Big Sur. Uh, I was having trouble with my battery or so I thought. Actually, I thought I was having trouble with my charger and I swapped out my charger that I have in the living room, which is where I generally charge my uh, my laptop because I would pick it up and it wouldn't be fully charged even after being on charge all night. And I was like, oh, this is bad. Like something's wrong. And I, I swapped out the charger and I thought that fixed it because it seemed to. And then no, it didn't. And it was weird. Like it would be plugged in and it would say there was power. I could look in. If you want to see what your system at least thinks it knows about power, go to uh, system information, which I get to by option clicking the Apple menu, but you can get there many other ways. It's in fact an app in your utilities folder, but go into system information, go to power. And at the bottom, you will see AC charger and it will tell you a, if it's connected, B the wattage and C if it's charging. So connected and charging are two different states. Well, I dug around and it didn't fix, even though I swapped out the power adapter, John and it turns out that Big Sur has some nice little battery management in it. And one of the things that it has in the uh, battery section of, uh, of system preferences is optimized battery charging. And it's was at least uh, I was going to say it's on by default. It's on on mine. I don't know if it's on by default for everyone, but it's described as to reduce battery aging. Your Mac learns from your daily charging routine so it can wait to finish charging past 80 percent until you need to use it on battery. So um, evidently, my patterns were not something that Big Sur could uh, correctly into it, which makes sense because I use my laptop at odd intervals. And so it would not necessarily charge when I needed it to. So I've left optimized battery charging on and I'm going to see how it goes. But at least now I know what I think is the cause of my issues. Of course, I may have two issues. It might have been this plus an issue with my charger, in which case, you know, troubleshooting goes out the window when you're trying to solve the same problem with really two, with the same symptom with two different problems underneath it. But that's what makes it fun. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I wanted to make sure everybody knew about this optimized charging thing. Pretty cool. Huh? I mean, it is pretty cool that they're doing this. Similar to yeah. what they're doing on the iPhone, right? Well, it 
this was this is in Catalina too. I guess you just never had a. I never ran into a problem with it. Reason in to go there. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it. So it. I. I. Okay. So what does yours say in Catalina? Right. Do you have a a MacBook? You have your MacBook Pro nearby there to to poke mm-hmm. at. Yeah. I'm yeah, just I curious. Think I have a f- no, because we talked. Yeah, know, I know we've talked about, about it. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me. I'm uh, just curious what it says in in Catalina. Interesting. And I know it's there in iOS too. At least iOS, uh, I think thirteen something and later, right? Thirteen two maybe. I want to say. Yeah. Battery health. Battery health. Oh, okay. All right, it's all right. There, there's it, it's it's not up front in um in Catalina. Okay, you have to hit a button. Battery health, and then then it has similar wording there. Okay, and and you can check a box for optimized zone. charging. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah, got it. All right. Well, so- it's they call it battery health management here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there is a battery health button at the bottom there, but but the checkbox for optimized battery charging has moved to be a f- on the uh, on the same page as the battery health button. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, all right. Well, see, that's this is the beauty of this stuff is digging in and learning and fun things. So I'm hoping that I fixed it, but uh, but that's that. So anything else on this before we move on to Rich here, John? Let's go. Okay. Rich uh, has three cool stuffs found from the last episode. He says for ransomware protection, I recommend the free utility called ransomware. W H E R E question mark, right? Uh, from objective C and that's S E E. So clearly uh, very interested in, in twisting the spellings here, but it it's, it's from a very smart person. The author, Patrick Wardle, uh, as Rich continues, is well known in the macOS security space and has many other free security focused utilities available on his website. I have had the pleasure of both meeting and watching Patrick speak about security at uh, various Mac tech conferences. And Rich's assessment is correct that he is well known and he knows his stuff. So uh, I was very glad to see that this uh, utility exists. So ransomware it's free. And of course, there's a link in the show notes at MacGeekab.com. Rich continues with cool stuff found number two. You also talked about finder replacements. My favorite is Forklift from Binary Knights. It is a dual pane file manager that started its life as an FTP client and grew into so much more. Since working from home, it also shows all of my mounted shared drives at work in the menu uh, when they are available. And... Uh, that's uh, forklift from binary nights also in the show notes. And lastly, but not leastly speaking of working from home, my very, uh, my cool stuff found tip for today is auto mounter. When I connect my work VPN, I have it configured to mount all of the shared drives that I use at the office. When I disconnect the VPN, it automatically disconnects my drives. The free version of this utility did all I needed it to do, but I purchased the paid version to support the dev. Uh, one, the, the one utility removed this one utility removed my biggest headache of working from home on my Mac and connecting it to a windows environment back at the office. I need to get on board, John, with someone else writing the, uh, code that manages the auto mounting of my drives this week. Again, I was fighting with the keyboard macro keyboard maestro and Apple 
uh, Apple script automator. So I have an automator app that mounts my disk station drives and a keyboard maestro set of macros that trigger to make sure that it mounts those. And again, I was fighting with it, but I, I, I tweaked it and got it working the right way again. Now I have uh, an IP address filter to make sure that it's not trying to mount when a, the system doesn't have an IP in like if it has a self-assigned IP or doesn't have an IP in my local network range. So if I am somewhere else, it's not trying to do it. And it was, I don't know, but I'm, I feel like this is a problem other people have solved and maybe it might be good to just let them solve it for me too. So I don't know any thoughts about any of those three ransomware forklift or auto mounter. Thank you, Rich. Um, I'll have to check out the ransom thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you might find some very interesting things from Patrick over at Objective C. He that we've talked about a few of them before. Uh I I found uh I, you know, he I I think one of the times that I saw him speak, he was talking about a couple of his utilities. Uh I think oversight was one of the ones that we've talked about before, but we've, we've definitely talked about some of his stuff and he's got some good command line utilities too. So go check it out. Patrick's a smart, smart dude. He understands security and he knows how to code. It's, it's a, and he's very generous with his, uh, his findings and his creations, which is even better. So go check him out. Fun stuff. All right. Moving on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All righty. Uh, speaking of ransomware, Rob has, uh, has something for us. Rob says, talking about the Dan's question about the loss of the losses from ransomware on his FileMaker server. He says, I have a couple of thoughts to add. Number one, you're likely to notice fairly quickly if ransomware tries to encrypt your live FileMaker database files, the FileMaker server process will freak out. When uh, this other process tries to read and write its live files, that's true. Uh, it's probably not what you want to use as your first line of defense, assuming that, you know, your apps will notice a, an issue. It also might be too late, but, uh, but it, that is true. And he also offers Amazon's S3 file storage is a great offline and offsite backup solution. Their command line S3 tool can sync your FileMaker server's backup directory or anything, of course, to S3 on a schedule. And you can set an expiry policy to automatically delete backups over a certain age so that your stored volume doesn't just keep growing. Very cool. Yeah, Amazon S3 is, it's, I mean, it's a good offline backup destination and you can use their command line utility you can use, oh, why am I not? Oh, uh, uh, ARC, ARQ. I could see it in the distance and it was coming in clear. So thankfully, a ARQ from Haystack Software uh, is a great backup utility that can back up to many types of destinations. And S3, I believe, is one of them. So very cool stuff. Thank you, Rob, for that. Any more thoughts on on that, John? Yeah, I think um, uh, Synology's backup program will is able to target S3 as well, right? I think you're right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly universally common destination for things. In fact, there are some smaller third-party companies that say they are S3 compatible in that 
the API used to send your data to and from S3 stores is essentially the same API they've, they've adopted. So you just put their server name in, of course you pay them for whatever service you're getting from them, but presumably it's better, faster, cheaper, or something for certain types of users than Amazon S3. So yeah, great. Cool. Amazon S3, they also have like Glacier, which is a slower to retrieve from backup service. Well, but way cheaper, right? It's almost yeah. like offline storage. So, and they've, and they've got one other two uh, that I was helping my friend Brad out with recently, but yeah, it, it, doing the pricing on it, Amazon S3 is very aggressively priced. So it is worth looking into uh, for your, you know, it, like I said, they've got different tiers and different capabilities of the service, but they are very aggressively priced. It is one of the places where Amazon, you know, really stands out. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I like Glacier. Mm. Just kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, Oops. usually, usually when you say something's glacial, that's usually bad, especially in the computer world. But in this case, it's, it accurately, accurately describes what they do. What they do. Yeah. No, it's, it is much slower than their standard offering, but also way, way less expensive. So yeah, they've got mm -hmm. S3 Glacier and S3 Glacier Deep. So there you go. Mainly for data archiving, of course. So. Mm -hmm. Moving to staying with Cool Stuff Found, but moving to into one of our favorite topics, we have a note from uh, listener John, who is having some Wi-Fi issues and shares his Cool Stuff Found. He says, I don't want to jinx myself. But I've had the Ubiquiti Amplify Alien Dual system up and running for two days now. And all I can say is, wow, not only did it solve the issues I presented uh, earlier, but it seemingly solved every other Wi-Fi related problem I've been having over the past few years. The no response messages I would get fairly regularly within HomeKit have disappeared. He says I have 70 HomeKit devices. The speed issues are gone. Wireless speeds with my iPad and iPhone are routinely in the 400 to 500 megabytes, megabits per second down, 35 to 40 up. Uh, he says, but even at the furthest point, and that, he says that's when he's in the same room. At the furthest points in my home, he says, I never have anything less than about 200 megabits per second down. No more stuttering or skipping with Zoom calls. My cameras, six home kits, various manufacturers, are responsive and online at all times. My Amplify, he had an Amplify HD system previous to that. Uh, he says that was two wireless routers connected via Ethernet and three mesh points. This is what I needed to cover my whole house previously, but even this didn't seem to be enough. Many of my devices uh, registered less than 50% connections. With the Amplify Alien system, which is just the router and one mesh point, not a single device registers less than 75%. That's a really interesting set of data there. Uh, thank you for sharing that. He says, as an aside, oh, and he has a, another question that we'll get to in a different time. We compartmentalize this stuff. Uh, that's very cool. Now the alien dual system is their Wi-Fi six uh, setup. Uh, it is, I think it's, it's not, it's not inexpensive by any stretch. It is, I believe a $699, call it a $700 system. So you're basically paying 350 bucks for the router and the mesh point each. But if it works that well, 
maybe that, well, it's certainly worth it for, uh, for listener John here and might well be worth it for you. So in this case, at least for him paying for it really helps. It's a tri-band system. Uh, looking at what I can find here, it's got two, five gigahertz radios, one, 2.4 gigahertz radio. The 2.4 gigahertz radio is a four by four Wi-Fi six radio. Yes. Wi-Fi six signaling happens over 2.4 as well as five. So it's got a 2.4 gigahertz, four by four radio, a five gigahertz, four by four radio just for Wi-Fi five, and then a five gigahertz, eight by eight radio just for Wi-Fi six. So, and, and obviously they all work together for the meshing on the backhaul too, presumably attempting at least to leverage the Wi-Fi six for the backhaul to get really fast connections between the mesh point and the router. So yeah, very amplify. So they come from ubiquity, right? Ubiquity makes lots of enterprise gear. They also make the, you know, the unified product line, which sits between enterprise and, uh, it sits between, you know, enterprise and prosumer realm, not uncommon to run, uh, amplify, uh, sorry, not uncommon to run unify stuff in your homes. So this clearly takes advantage of all the learnings that ubiquity has, has made over the last what decade plus doing mesh stuff in the enterprise. So yeah, great, great to hear about it. We'll, we'll check this out too. We're digging deep into Wi-Fi six right now because I think 2021, we talked about this, but I think 2021 really is going to be the year of Wi-Fi six. So thank you listener, John, for this slightly extended cool stuff found any thoughts on that mr braun no okay fun stuff uh you found well you found an uncool thing mr braun uh yes here's an adventure uh uncool stuff found or just a heads up to people so uh one thing that um that i use when we uh put the show together is uh, we'll export the uh, emails to a PDF and then put it in Evernote. And you can do that manually. Or uh, long ago, Dave, you had written a small Apple script to do that. And it, Automator, and, I think, um, right? No, it's an Apple script. Oh, okay. It's, and it tells you what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so it puts, uh, and what you do is, um, it's in home library. Um, what is it? PDF. Is it PDF actions? Yeah, it's a PDF action is where we put it. That's right. Yep. So that it shows up yeah. in the print menu. Yes. So that's cool. Um, the uncool thing was sometime, um, during the last week, it no longer worked on my MacBook Pro. And I'm like, what's wrong? It would it, it would launch Evernote, but then it would never pass in the arguments um, that the Apple script would pass into it to um, move the PDF and, and put it in our uh, MGG box. Uh, or we have an MGG folder. And I'm like, what did I, why, what, what is happening? What did I change? So at first I'm like, oh, you know, I wonder if it's because I updated um, Mac OS server. So maybe it's like some inter-process communication thing. It's screwing up. Sure. So I'm like, all right, let, let me disable that. And I'm like, nah, nah, that didn't do it. Then I went to a backup 
that I did like a week prior, Dave, and it worked in that. And I'm like, all right, that's kind of weird. <clears throat> um, but then I finally figured out what it was. So I went to my, but the thing is, it did work on my Mac Mini. So it's like, well, why is it not working on my MacBook Pro and working on the Mac Mini? Sure. And then it came to me. Um, so I, I, you know, I looked at the, um, I did a get info on the Evernote client, Dave. And that was it. On my Mac Mini, it was at version 7.14. But on my MacBook Pro, it was version 10.16, I think, or something like that. Um, so um, updating the client breaks Apple script. And you actually found a discussion thread on, um, on their forums that confirmed this. Yeah. Um, so what they did is they moved to a new environment, development environment. Uh, what was it called? Um, I'm looking it up here. I've, I forget off the top of my head. It begins with an E, uh, but they, oh, no, that's not where it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the, there's, it's a cross-platform development environment that uh, called Electron that allows you to develop for iOS, Android, Mac, Windows, right? I mean, it's like, it's all in one, but Electron, at least as it currently stands, doesn't have support for Apple script. So therefore this new version of Evernote doesn't have support for Apple script. It could get it. There is some theorization about how that would be possible. And there's lots of discussions. The Evernote folks are aware that there are those of us that want ever want Apple script and rely on it. And for now, version 7.14, uh, it's version 10 and later that are built on this electron platform without Apple script support version 7.14, which was the most recent Evernote is uh, still very capable. You can still download it from them. This is one of those scenarios where it, and this is not an uncommon scenario where it's way better to get the app from the developer instead of from the Mac app store. Uh, there was a time when I, there were features that were not in sync between the two. They couldn't include certain features in the Mac app store version. And so I just standardized on getting it from their website. Like the same thing was true with like BB edit where there's, you know, like the command line stuff can't be bundled with it. If it's coming from the, the Mac app store, I don't know what we like. There mm. were, there are things that the Mac app store simply doesn't allow and for better and for worse, that's just how it is. So yeah, mm. I, I like to get those kinds of apps. I, I like the Mac app store cause it's a great package manager, right? It, you know, you, mm -hmm. it keeps things up to date. It's all in one. It's great. Except when, the apps you get from it aren't good, but that's an aside. So yeah. Uh, yep. yeah. So the back. way I, I solved the problem on my MacBook pro was um, I actually restored the app from a, uh, from a time machine backup and no problem. We're Be careful that now. the app store doesn't try to update it on you. You know, that the, that's the weird thing, Dave, is that on the Mac mini, and this is how I confirmed that that's what the problem was. Is So on the Mac Mini, when I saw that I had the older version, I actually went to the... But the App Store on my Mini didn't pester me and say, hey, you got to upgrade to 10. So but is it... When I went to the page for the Evernote app, 
it did have an upgrade button. Uh, so it did it, it 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 never pestered me to upgrade to 10 on this machine. Are you running um, the direct version, perhaps? Did you have the direct version on your mini? And like you can look No, no, it's the App Store version. Okay, because you can look in in the if, get info, it says App Store version. So yeah, okay. it, it was definitely the App Store version. Okay. So it it just yeah. never got around to telling me to upgrade on Yeah. Cool. Uh, so anyway, so sure. So be careful upgrading Evernote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, a reminder from listener Dennis, uh, kind of piggybacking on Rich's auto mounter suggestion is that there is a mountain to control our network mounted drives too. So thank you for that, Dennis. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Like, I, I, sometimes it's fun to craft and concoct your own things and be in control of them. And, you know, it's part of the geek. Well, it's part of the geek problem, isn't it? That, you know, I want to do it myself, but it's probably better if I let somebody else do it. I don't know. One of these days, one of these days, John, it's just going to be how it is. Anything else on any of that, my friend? Um, no, sure. Well, one thing, Dave, yeah, is no. that you do know that if, if you have a problem with any of your apps, um, one thing you could do is send us an email at feedback at com. That's true. That's true. As I said in the intro to the show, feedback at com. Make sure you get the K's and the G's lined up correctly. It matters. You can also just do it from within the Mac Geek Gab app for your iPhone or iPad. So that might make life a little easier. All right. We have some great questions to dig into about drives and SSDs and managing your data and all of that and fun, geeky stuff. The next thing that I want to do, John, as long as it works for you, is I would like to talk about our sponsors for today. That work? Fantastic. All right. Our first sponsor today is a favorite of ours, and that is Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com. You folks know OWC as the place John and I go when we need to buy new stuff to add to or enhance our Macs. Well, today we get to talk about OWC's Envoy Express. This is the world's first Thunderbolt certified bus powered add your own drive enclosure. So, Plugs right into your Thunderbolt port on your Mac, your Thunderbolt 3 port. It's really easy to use. Install an M.2 NVMe SSD inside it and you're all set. Up to 1,553 megabytes per second of real-world performance. And with a drive in there, it's just 3.3 ounces. The best part, I don't, actually, I don't know what the best part is. All of these parts are good, but another great part 79 bucks for the enclosure, now shipping. This thing is going to be your favorite pocket-sized storage solution. Just one little screwdriver, you, two screws, you pop the thing open, put your SSD in, close it. Super easy, super fast, super convenient. It's compact, silent, no fan, no motors, because it's an SSD. That's how it is. And it includes a back-of-the-laptop screen slide mount for safe, out-of-the-way use so that you're not, you know, dangling this dongle around if you don't want to be. Sits right there, looks good, and this thing, it screams. So check it out. Go to Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com and our thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this episode. 
Next up is Nebia. John, I have created a problem for myself. When we built our bathroom 15 years ago, we have kind of a you know, normal sized shower, I would say, but we put two shower heads in, one on either side, so that Lisa has her side of the shower. I have my side of the shower. We can shower together if we want, but even when we're showering alone, you know, we've got our own stuff there. Well, ever since I installed the Nebia by Moen Spa Shower, we all shower on one side because. It's so much better. There is no way either one of us is going to shower with an old, like, normal shower head when we've got this Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. And the Spa Shower is the right name for this. It creates this fantastic sort of immersive 360-degree thing where you're just enveloped in the warmth of this water. It's, it atomizes the, the water into these, you know, tiny little molecules, but it's still strong enough so that you can wash your hair and all of that stuff. It, needless to say, you know, I think Lisa likes it more than I do. And I love this thing. And it's their most advanced and affordable shower yet. They started this company and the products were like $4.99 and up. This one starts at just $1.99 and it saves 45% of the water that you would use compared to a standard shower. But has double the coverage. You know that Tim Cook was, I think, Nebby's first investor? That's pretty cool. You know what else is cool? You get 15% off site-wide right now for the first 100 listeners of MacGeekGab to use code MGG. These codes are being used. Your fellow listeners are using these things. So go check it out. Go to nebbia.com slash MGG and use code MGG to get 15% off site-wide. That's nebbia.com slash MGG. And our thanks to Nebbia for making the awesome Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower and for sponsoring this episode. You know, now more than ever, you really shouldn't put off seeing a doctor when you're not feeling well. And I know that with everything going on, it can be difficult to put your health first. It can be especially difficult when that idea of going to see your doctor involves going to somewhere else, out and about in a doctor's office. That can be, you know, a little bit anxious. And that's why I've been using Plush Care. They make seeing a doctor so easy because I can do it right from home. Plush Care provides virtual doctor's appointments through your phone or your computer. I've actually done them in both ways. It works equally well on my Mac as well as on my iPhone. I just pick a time that works for me and I book an appointment right online. I don't have to sit on hold forever to make an appointment or leave the house and sit in that crowded waiting room. And, no. What's cool is oftentimes, in fact, I think every time I've been able to book a same day appointment. And with Plush Care, I can be diagnosed, treated, and even have a prescription sent to my pharmacy if needed, all within minutes. Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers and is available in all 50 U.S. states. And the doctors care. They're there to help. It's really nice to have this kind of focused one-on-one -on -one thing going on. And with Plush Care, I don't have to put off seeing a doctor, and neither should you. No more excuses for either one of us. Deal? Deal. Make your appointment today. Go to plushcare.com slash MGG. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash MGG. One more time with feeling plushcare.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Plush Care for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's dig into drive stuff, shall we, John? Let's see if we can solve some drive problems. We'll start with listener John, who says... 
I'm awaiting the delivery of a 2020 Mac mini from Apple. It will replace my older 2012 iMac, which will not support further OS upgrades. I have ordered a new four terabyte WD, my passport USB three external rotational hard drive that I intend to use for my iCloud photos library and other files on the mini. I considered an SSD, but prices for that type of storage are still quite high. My old iMac holds my photo library on its internal Mac OS hard drive extended journaled. So HFS plus, which is now my data disk while Catalina boots from an attached USB three, 500 gig SSD. My question is before setting up, which formatting option do you recommend for the new WD external spinning hard drive, APFS or HFS plus AKA Mac OS extended journaled? Uh, I'll be using it as a data disc for the new Mac mini. Will the T2 chip have any effect on my plans? I will be using carbon copy cloner for cloning to a separate external drive. And he says, I will use another external drive for time machine. All right. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, the all else being equal, John, uh, I, I'm curious to your thoughts on this, but I would recommend HFS plus for any external drives, especially those that are rotational. And since you're not cloning to it, you have the freedom to do that. Your clone drive with Catalina and later certainly has to be a APFS because that's just how it works. That's the only thing from which it will boot. But because you're using a separate drive for your cloning, you can stick with HFS plus for your um, for your your data drive and, and that sort of thing. So that's what I would do. That is what I do, I think. I know I've tested back and forth with a lot of things, but I'm pretty sure my data drive is APFS or is HFS plus. What are you doing, John? How, what would you recommend? Um, my external drives are all APFS, but that's because I clone to them. And I, at this point do not have an external drive that I use for data storage. Got it. All my data is on my NAS. So, okay. Yeah. So I, where, I, I'd go with that. Where do you store your, like your iCloud photo? Like I'm assuming you're like me and you feel the need to have a, at least one local copy of all your iCloud photos. Uh, you don't have to, right? You can always check the box to say optimize storage and just trust the cloud, but I do not. So I keep all my mm -hmm. photos local. Where do you store the, I'm assuming you're doing the same thing. Is that right? And if so, where do you store that? Mm -hmm. So where, well, no, they're stored. They're on the clone. Okay. So my you, photo library is on the clone. That's the only data. So I only have one duplicate of it which no i mean like where oh, wait, is no, the where's the original of it like wh where does your where does your mac read its photo library from i guess is my question uh my macbook pro oh it's so it's on the internal drive mm -hmm. okay yes. so your macbook pro is the mac that keeps the full you know all download originals to this mac photo library uh mm -hmm. so how big of a drive do you have in yes. your macbook pro one terabyte. That's why. Okay. Of course. <laughs> okay. And my photo library is about, uh, I think it's about 250 gigs. Okay. All right. All my photos. So, right. No, of course. Yeah. It, as well, it should be. So, right. I don't generally buy laptops that can store my entire photos library. I store mine on my desktop on my, you know, which is currently an iMac. 
And, and on that machine, I just have it because it doesn't matter on an iMac because I, you know, having an external drive connected, it's just going to be connected all the time because I'm not moving it anywhere. So I store my photos library on the, on an external drive, similar to what listener John is, is talking about doing. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I do find that storing your photos library on an, storing my photos library on an SSD works it, it was night and day moving from a rotational drive to an SSD. Again, I'm doing it all external, but having my photos library on an SSD is so much easier to move through things and, and all that. Now, admittedly, I was using a slower uh, rotational drive. So maybe this, uh, what is it? A WD, my passport, maybe that's going to be fast enough. You're not going to notice a, a lag, but I was, it, it's a world of difference launching a photos library from, from an SSD for me. So I throw it out there. Lisa, I did the same thing for Lisa, put an SSD on her machine and move the photos library to it. And she's like, I can use my photos again. It's like, yeah, makes a difference. So, (laughs) all right. Any more thoughts on that? So for external drives, if you weren't cloning to them, John, would you use APFS nowadays or would you still use HFS plus? Um, I would say, yeah, a- APFS makes me nervous. You know, I had that issue with uh, Big Sur and, and it touched one of my drives mm. and then all of a sudden it like spun out of control. So uh, I, I don't know if I fully trust APFS. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it, it has been weird for me on external drives. And of course it's, it's been tested to be slower, at least in terms of raw data speeds. Uh, so the, the benefit though, and it, this really comes with an SSD uh, is that APFS manages the storage as one blob, right? So you're not partitioning things. You are just saying assign a chunk of this data, no matter where it resides. Cause it doesn't matter because it's an SSD, and so you have some fluidity with that and you can control the size of your volumes without as much trouble as it was with repartitioning and adjusting partition sizes with APFS. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, but I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm, I will still default to HFS plus if possible. So, yeah. All right. Moving on here to Andrew and Andrew asks, there we are. I'm just wondering if there was an issue using a fusion drive with Mac OS Mojave or Catalina. It's a 2017, 27 inch iMac with 16 gigs of Ram and a one terabyte fusion drive. For some reason, I recall there being an issue with the fusion drive in Mojave, but I could be incorrect in my recollection. Uh, yeah. Okay. So Mojave is much to our, certainly much to my surprise. Mojave is fine as is, Catalina with fusion drives. We, when those things came out, man, I, I, my predictions were wrong. Uh, I thought fusion drives were going to be a disaster with the migrating of data and merging. And if one part of it starts to get wonky, like it just felt like this really inconsistent thing with no fault tolerance. I guess that's what I, that was the mindset in the, the goggles that I had on looking at it. In retrospect, of course, and just going at least anecdotally by what, you know, a decade of your questions coming in and our experiences on our own and in the field, it just hasn't been an issue. When there is an issue, repairing it 
is as difficult as we predicted. In fact, often it's they don't repair it, just reformat and restore from your backup. But we're all making backups anyway, right? So assuming that's the case, I would not worry about a fusion drive, even though you could. You should be, like on paper, we should, except the paper says we haven't had a lot of problems. Um, the one recurring thing that you might be recalling from this show is iCloud drive syncing. Um, if you've got iCloud drive syncing enabled for, say, your documents folder and your desktop folder um, on a fusion drive as your boot drive, things can get really slow as it constantly is crunching, looking for data to sync and, and pouring through that. That's the one issue that we've seen with fusion drives. We don't seem to see it with Dropbox syncing. We don't seem to see it with Synology drive or Synology cloud station, depending on which version you're running. We don't see it with that, but we do see it with iCloud drive syncing, turning off the documents and desktop syncing in iCloud drive immediately resolves those speed issues that we've seen with the fusion drives. So that, that would be the one thing to be aware of. I'm not sure how far back this problem goes though. It's certainly true with Catalina. Uh, I believe it's true with Mojave. It might be true with prior OSs or it might not. So that's the one thing to, to be aware of and think about. Otherwise, yeah, nothing that we've seen. So thoughts, John. Yeah. There's no, I, I, I've never done a fusion drive. Yeah. Like, yeah. like with you, it made me kind of nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an inexpensive way to get the one volume of storage that the things that generally need to be fast are fast from the SSD. I mean, I like the concept, but yeah, I might, the iMac that I was using when fusion drives came out did not natively support fusion drive, although it came with the hardware for a fusion drive. I think I had a, I don't know, 256 gig SSD and a one terabyte internal. And I was using them separately for, before Apple announced the fusion drive. And I could have, you can always manually go into the command line and cook together a fusion drive. I opted not to do that. And honestly, I, I, that living that way has worked very well for me, for my, my desktop machines and just having a, a boot drive. Like I think in my iMac now downstairs, I know my main machine, it's just a 512. I'd say just a 512. It's a 512, but I could live with a 256 gig SSD as long as I've got other drives hanging off of it that I can put the data on. So, yeah. All right. Um, well, let's stay with the fusion drive, uh, concept here, John, and go to Domenico, uh, who asks, I have a 2017 iMac retina 27 inch with a two terabyte fusion drive inside. I'm running into performance issues with the drive. I do a lot of audio processing in Adobe audition and it's just slow. And I'm worried about the long-term longevity of the Fusion Drive components, especially, of course, the spinning bit. I looked into replacing the internal drive with an internal SSD, but doing it myself is intimidating, and I don't want to lose the time to send it out to have replaced. So it seems like I should go with an external SSD, maybe Thunderbolt, maybe USB. So what drives do you recommend? Uh, and he says, here's some more criteria. I would like two terabytes. More is nice, but it gets rapidly expensive. It does. He says, since both of my Thunderbolt 3 ports are being used right now, I would like the drive to daisy chain off the back of one of the ports. He says, one of the ports is connecting to an external display. 
and the other connects to a USB-C hub from Satechi. I don't think I need a RAID at this point. While the pure speed of a RAID is enticing, the cost to performance equation just doesn't add up for me. Should I get an enclosure plus a third-party SSD, or should I go all in one? So the thing on the IMAX uh, is that those two Thunderbolt 3 ports are valuable. And I know this because I have two IMAX, and I've only got four Thunderbolt 3 ports between the two of them. Uh, so if you're going to do a Thunderbolt drive, and maybe even if you're going to do a USB drive, depending on which Satechi hub you have, you might need to go for a Thunderbolt dock to... Uh, pass through and and give you the ports that you need for your USB stuff and even your display and then also uh, you know have that drive there or you can get a drive that has other ports built into it like the OWC Thunderblade right but th that starts to the price of that starts to add up too another path to go and I really would think about this is getting a you know 10 gigabit per second USB drive to hang off of a Thunderbolt dock. Um, and that way you're not terminating the Thunderbolt chain. It maxes out at 10 gigs of speed instead of 20 gigs or 40 gigs uh, that a Thunderbolt drive might do. And really you're never going to see 40. It's like uh, it's 28 or something, right? Is, is where Thunderbolt drives, single Thunderbolt drives tend to, you know, top out just because of the, the mechanics or not the mechanics, the circuitry of single SSD blades, right? So without a RAID, that's what you're going to have. You know, the Samsung T7 uh, at $299 or maybe even less now is an option that goes, I've tested that, it goes at that full, you know, 10 gigs, 1,050 megabits per second or whatever it is. Um, that, that would be a good option. And then the OWC Thunderbolt 3 Hub, uh, or the new Anchor Thunderbolt 3 hub, which has an extra USB-C port on it, uh, would be a good option, Option, especially if you're going to go this route. So, yeah, um, it, it you know, it, it, there's no great path to get there just because you're limited on those Thunderbolt 3 ports on the back of the iMac. But, uh, but I think, you know, I think the Samsung T7 plus one of the hubs, either the Anchor hub or the OWC hub, would be the... Uh, would be the option here. I, that's kind of how I would look at this uh, if it were my machine. And I agree, ripping it apart to replace the guts inside, eh, you don't, like, why bother? It, you're not going to do anything where you need to move the thing around. And one nice part is now you've got an external setup that could be moved easily to another machine if you ever had a hardware problem or you replaced the iMac or or whatever. So I don't know. That's uh, that's that's my ramblings on this, John. What do you think? Um, for my clone setup, what I what I finally settled on, Dave, was um. So I I got a uh, an Orico O R I C O uh, external enclosure that's okay. USB C. Uh, now, if you do that, you want to make sure that you get the right cable. Remember, we talked about this before. Totally. Not all USB-C cables are right. And and I got the, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put links to both of these. Cool. I, I got my Amazon list here. Um, but that worked for me, and I, I achieve maximum speed with that. Yep. Um, but again, be careful with cable selection if you're going to do an external deal. Totally. That's one of the things I can't yeah. wait for Thunderbolt 4, man. 
because those cables are going to be less expensive and it will be one cable to rule them all. It, you know, it will pass power. It will do USB-C at full speed. It will do Thunderbolt at full speed. Like there, there are two things I'm looking forward to with Thunderbolt four, really everything else we already have with Thunderbolt three, Thunderbolt four brings us a better cable spec and it, and, and less expensive cable spec, which is the really kind of the you know magic part there. And it brings us hubbing, which would also be something that uh, Domenico would benefit from, right? Being able to hub Thunderbolt ports so that you can take one Thunderbolt port and turn it into two. That's amazing. Thunderbolt 3 does not support hubbing. Thunderbolt 4 does support hubbing. Uh, and that's really all we would use Thunderbolt 4 for, even in Domenico's case, right? If he had Thunderbolt 4 ports on his iMac, which he does not because there are no Apple devices with them, he would put... Uh, a Thunderbolt 4 dock slash hub, like the one that OWC just released for Windows only because there are no Macs that would support it yet, you know, presumably someday. Uh, he would put one of those on and then hang a Thunderbolt 3 dock or Thunderbolt 3 drive off of it because you don't, there will be no Thunderbolt 4 drives. We're going to have Larry on the show to, to Larry from OWC to explain all this to us, but there will be no Thunderbolt 4 drives because they, they can't use all the PCI lanes. Thunderbolt 4 really is just for unifying the standard, which we don't need on Macs because Apple has already done that and giving us hubbing. So anyway, I'm excited about this, as you can tell. I don't want to over-confuse the things, so we will... We'll have the man come and talk to us. Maybe I can get him on next week, John. So we will see. Cool. Uh, or you could use that new Envoy Express, right? The the one we just talked about in the sponsor spot here. That is for 79 bucks. The uh, Envoy Express is an enclosure. I, I mean, I just finished talking about it, but you know, that has that you put an M.2 uh, S, uh, NVMe SSD in and you are good to go, right? It's got like a, yeah, it's great. So that's another way to go is do it yourself and build your own, but you still need a Thunderbolt port for that. So the, the same problem sort of appears, but yeah, cool. All righty. Moving on, John, are we good on, on this one? Mm -hmm. All righty. Yes. M moving on to Bob. Bob asks, he says, uh, I'm determined to get to this job in the fall, I have about a hundred DVDs of old family videos that I originally digitized from VHS. And now that DVDs are no longer in vogue, my MacBook Pro no longer has a DVD drive. He says, of course, I need to get the videos onto my Mac or SSD. I know I will need to purchase a DVD drive. I trust Apple quality. So I'm thinking of buying the Apple USB super drive, but it's quite pricey. So I'm wondering whether you two can recommend another reliable brand. But my big question is, what software can I use that would allow me to import the video and then break up bits of the DVDs into clips that I could share with my family? So, for instance, I have a DVD with our visit to Niagara Falls and then on the same DVD, a visit to Algonquin Park in Ontario. What would allow me to take, say, a section of us getting into a canoe and just sharing that, let's say, three minute clip with friends? Good question. Um, let's answer the first part. Uh, Apple SuperDrive is good, but it doesn't do Blu-ray discs. You don't have Blu-ray discs for this project, so that's okay. But if you're going to do this, you might as well have the ability to do other things if you want that option down the road. You know, I use a generic USB drive that reads Blu-rays and DVDs, of course, 
uh, and then write, reads and writes uh, all other things. I don't think it'll write Blu-rays, my, my little thing. They used to be about 45 bucks. Now it seems to be about 85. I don't know why the prices have gone up. I'll put a link in, in the show notes to just sort of these generic drives. Uh, but you know, I would, I would look at one that matches the connector that I have and want and has decent reviews. And then that's it. Like, you know, the, the away we go. And I think you're doing something similar. You have a similar drive, right, John? Yeah, I'm going to link to it. So I, I did um, get an external Blu-ray because um, yeah. to uh, rip. Um, yeah. Um, and, and the one I got, Dave, and I think it was, yeah, I think the, the price that you mentioned is is about right. Um, yeah, I got a one from Pawtech, P-A-W-T-E-C. Okay. Is it still available? <clears throat> Uh, it looks to be, yes. They change uh-huh. constant. I, th- I ask because like the one that when I answered this question, we've had this, like I said, we've had some, some of these questions around for a little bit. This came in over the summer and the one that I found over the summer that I would have, that I did suggest when it came in is no longer available on Amazon. So that's why I'm just going to put the link to searching for these drives. Um, looking today, it seems to be about that $85 realm where you get a Blu-ray player slash reader and then a DVD RW burner, uh, with a, you know, this, the, the top one that I see here is a, a USB-C port. Some of them have USB-A to USB-C adapters, so you can do either, but you're paying, yeah, 85 and up for these. And I know when, when we were buying them years ago, I guess they were just more plentiful, more people wanted them supply and demand maybe. Uh, but it was, you know, like 35, 45 bucks. So, but they're not anymore. So today you get to buy, you get to pay 85. It's <laughs> just how it is. So, yeah, cool. And you felt, how much is yours? The, the pod tech one that you found, John, what's the price on that? Uh, I look, like, yeah, like you said, like 80, uh, under a hundred dollars, under a hundred. Yeah. I, I guess correctly. Yeah. Cool. Um, as far as software to do this, it's a good question. Um, I haven't found I, this, this part may well remain a geek challenge and we would love to hear from you folks about this. If you have any ideas, I, I would use, I mean, I'd probably use handbrake to rip them all and, and handbrake will let you rip, uh, you know, the separate videos on the drive as separate, files and just store them on your Mac and then you can play them. You know, you can use, once you open something in QuickTime, even you can trim video in QuickTime. It's not the most elegant thing, but it's doable, especially if you want to just trim out a, you know, three minute segment. Um, you know, I, there are other apps. I, I don't do a lot of this stuff. So I, you know, what I do is I trim some of the videos for like for this show, like like our sponsor breaks now are videos because we're doing the show you can watch live at live.macgeekup.com when we record or after the fact on our YouTube channel or at you know Mac Observer or whatever. So and on Facebook too. So uh I I do our sponsor reads. I, I pre-record them for those of you that aren't aware, so that we can keep them tight and tidy and I can get to all the things without making them five minutes long each. And now I add a video element to that and I finish recording it. I put it all together and then I bring it into QuickTime and trim off the edges so that it starts and ends in a nice little tidy way. 
So, and QuickTime's great for that, like super easy, but there are also like, you know, high end uh, video editors like Blackmagic has theirs and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's available for free, right? So th like, that's a good way to go. Let's see where I know that, right? Isn't it Blackmagic's available for free? How come I can't remember what this is called? Man... I don't know. I'll find a link. I'll put it in the thing. I, I, I just don't, you know, I don't do enough of this. I mean, there's, there's always, you've got, I mean, you could do final cut pro if you want, but the black magic thing or whatever I'm thinking of is free. Um, you know, quick times there. So I would um, love to, what do you think, John? I mean, there is, uh, I mean, there's iMovie. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm looking here. Yeah. I mean, I haven't used it in ages. Yeah. Like, like you, like the, the other day I, um, downloaded a, a video from my TiVo. Well, I recorded a video and then I downloaded it and put it on the Mac and I realized that I had given it the wrong um, timestamps and that it recorded an hour when the, the program was only uh, half an hour. 30 minutes, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, uh, like you, I just used QuickTime and, and chopped off the part that I didn't want. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for simple editing, it's fine. Um, but you know, for more sophisticated stuff, maybe iMovie will do it for you. Yeah. And, uh, no, that's probably, free. yeah, that's true. The, um, the black magic's product is called DaVinci resolve and you can go get a free copy to use. Uh, if you want to do professional stuff with it, you, then there is a paid path, but for certainly it's going to be overkill for what we're talking about here anyway. So definitely you, you wouldn't need the paid version for this, but it might still be overkill. Like it, the, you might not like it for this. I, yeah, I think you're right, John. iMovie, uh, editing, you know, trimming with QuickTime, what, whatever, you know. Yeah. So, but QuickTime makes it super easy. <laughs> like I, I mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised uh, every week when I do that. It's like, oh, look at this. I just get to pull it in and I don't have to, you know, create a new project in some video app just to trim out, you know, a second and a half from the end. And, and like, it's just quick and easy. And yeah. So it, honestly, it might be your best path there. If you want to say, Oh, like, Oh, that little, that, you know, that canoe trip. And I just want to trim it right to the point before Susie fell out of the canoe. Like, you know, this would be great. And you can do that. No problem. So I hope Susie is okay. By the way, I, I think she made a full recovery. Everything's fine. Okay. Uh, keeping moving here, John. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, we have a question from Ev. Ev says, I just moved to Denver a couple months ago and I'm now pulling out some drives that are used for archiving data that I rarely touch, mostly data from old jobs that I no longer have. But I archive the data in the event they ever need it. I just plugged one in to spin it up and I hear a strange clicking sound. I've been operating SSDs exclusively for a while and I don't remember hard drives making this harsh of a click. Is it just me? Or do you think this drive, this drive will crash too? It's a four terabyte Seagate and probably about five years old. I have this data on my NAS as well. So uh, if it's okay, this drive were, it, it is okay if this drive were to die. I figured this would possibly be a good educational segment. Yeah, and I should have saved the audio file to play here in the show. Any clicking of a drive is really usually a bad, bad sign. And oftentimes it means it's not coming back. In fact, what do we used to call it, John? The, uh, the click of click of death. That's it. Yeah, there you go. So 
And I remember, um, uh, remember zip drives, the, they, uh, and the jazz drive. Um, who, I, I Omega, I Omega. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at one point these were fairly high capacity floppy like devices. But yeah, the, the, when the drive or when the cartridge was starting to go, you, you could definitely hear it because what it was doing, it was like, uh, I guess, recalibrating the head position or something like that Yeah, when it yeah. had a problem. But if it, if it, if it kept doing that and, and I think the rotational hard drive, it's a similar thing. It's like, oh, you know, I can't read or write to this spot. So let me, uh, you know, let me, let me move the head around. Um, recalibrate the head position and see if that'll do it. And it's like, nope, nope. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, nope. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem is oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's nope. Yeah. So those, yeah, those zip drives, man, when they, like when they were in their heyday, that was a cool thing to have. Cause they were a hundred megs. I know it sounds crazy to be excited about that, but to have a hundred meg removable, essentially three and a half inch disc uh, was amazing to be able to move that kind of data around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because floppies, if I recall correctly, held like 140K, not megs, K. So, yeah, having that amount of storage in a similar form factor was. Well, uh, no, I mean, that was five and a quarter inch floppies, but three and a oh, half, right, right. three and a half would hold eight, for us. Apple users, three and a half held 800K. Right. So mm -hmm. or 1.4 megs if you use the high density ones. Yes. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Megs versus, uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was a breakthrough. They just weren't terribly reliable. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I used them for a, a while, but you're right. They they were not as reliable as floppies, I guess. Not, and not that floppies were all that reliable either. But but yeah, they, mm -hmm. they definitely got, you know, I, I backed up to a zip drive. I used Retrospect to back up to a zip drive at home for a while. And I had two that I just rotated between. I, you know, it would... I'd, I'd have my Monday, Wednesday, Friday disc and my Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday disc or whatever it was. And then just, you know, back and forth and it was fine. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. I like this path, John. This is a fun little segment. We got to do more with discs. It's like, it's good geeky fun. And I, I think we're all, we're all, I'm learning things. So it's good. All right. Uh, going to Mike who asks, uh, I heard, I've heard you talk about nuke and pave often. I was thinking of doing that since I have never done so in 12 to 13 years. What is a good strategy for nuking and paving? I'm on an iMac running Mojave and I'm running it from an external SSD. The SSD has got plenty of room to make a complete new system on it. And I have clones and time machine as well. Do you have a strategy that you follow to nuke and pave efficiently? So great question. Uh, obviously, step one is make a backup. And take it offline, you know, back up to something that you can disconnect from your Mac, either a network drive, probably better to, to back up to a clone drive in this scenario so that you've got an easy path to restore when you blow things up. Uh, because I've been here. In fact, recently I was here where I was I was regurgitating. I was not regurgitating an iMac, folks. I was resuscitating. I was rekindling an old iMac. Uh, that maxed out at El Capitan, right? And it had El Cap on it, but I was giving it off to a friend who was going to use it for something. And I 
you know, went into recovery mode, formatted it out. I didn't need anything that was on there. Did not want to give all of our old data to a friend. It had already been backed up. Didn't need to worry about it. So I booted into recovery mode, John. I wiped it. I went into disk utility and these are part of the steps here. Uh, I went into disk utility. I wiped the drive and then also in disk utility, I just told it to install a new version of Mac OS, which it will download from the internet. And of course I have ethernet to plug into this thing. And so I did that and it failed three times in a row unspecifically, but very consistently. I cannot install on this. And I was like, crap, what I should have done was made an installer on a USB disc before I wiped this machine clean. So I had to go and find the, uh, the download for El Capitan. I always keep them, of course, on my disk station here, but it is better if you can to download the current version because they, Apple does go back and update these sometimes with, um, uh, with like updated security certificates so that you, they don't complain about not being right and all that. So anyway, I went to discmakerx.com slash download. And from there you can download, they have links that they, they don't host them, of course, but they have links to all of the Apple download pages for everything. So I downloaded El Capitan and did that, but I could have avoided having to go to another Mac and, and do all that. If I had just done that up front, uh, or if I had cloned the drive and was running El Capitan to begin with. So, because my Catalina Mac would not make, uh, using disc maker would not make the startup disc for, uh, for El Capitan. But there is that whole, you can do it from the command line where you, you dig into the install package and there is like core install media maker, whatever it is, John, I'll put a link in the show notes to those instructions because they may be important here. So I would back up first uh, and then I would also make an installer disc for yourself here. Right. And then I would, and the installer disc can be made easily with disc maker X, or you can do Apple's command line utility. Either one is fine. As long as you're doing it from the same OS that you're going to be installing from. So you get the backup made, you've got the installer disc made at that point. You could just boot from your install media on USB, or you can boot to recovery mode, either one. And uh, first run disk utility to wipe the internal drive. This is why you want to have a backup that is disconnectable because it keeps you from clicking the wrong thing and making an irreparable mistake. You've got an offline backup. You can always go back to that. No problem. And, uh, and then you, uh, and then you, you know, go through the install process, whichever way you want to do that. And, once you do that, then you can start bringing your data over, installing things, you know, downloading the stuff that you need, however that is. That's sort of the old way to do things, John. With APFS, things get a little more interesting because you can use disk utility and instead of erasing the disk, add a volume to it and install a new install of the OS right there alongside of the existing one, as long as you have space on the volume or on the disc, rather create a new volume, mm -hmm. install it. Then you can copy your stuff over, you know, right from itself and boot up to the new one, eject the old ones or don't mount the old one so that you don't have them both mounted at the same time, but you have it right there at your fingertips. So honestly, thinking through this with Catalina and later, this is probably how I would do a nuke and pave if the goal is 
of the nuke and pave is to just finally kind of have a fresh system that, you know, you you've been avoiding for a long time, which I totally get. I'm very much in that camp. So, uh, you know, right. Like what, like APFS does have that benefit so that I would still back up before doing any of this, but like that's, that's one way to do it. I don't know. What do you think, man? Mm, I haven't done one in a while. Same. Yeah. So, any thoughts on any of the stuff that we've been through or no. Okay. Uh, I will put a link to the disc maker 10 downloads page because that is a happy place to find all your old OS Mac OS installers. Um, I mean, it's again, they're not hosting them. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just linking to Apple's website, which is great. Uh, because you're always getting the the latest that Apple is publishing. And quite surprisingly, Apple publishes m many, many old versions of Mac OS. They don't go and prune them and take them down, which is great. So, uh, and then DiscMaker 10 or DiscMaker X is available. Uh, they, now they've got DiscMaker X Pro, John, which if you're running Catalina or prior will work for, it used to be that you had to download the version of disc maker for the specific operating system that you wanted to create. So on my drive, I've got like all mm -hmm. these different versions of disc maker. Well, disc maker X pro is everything through Mojave. It doesn't yet do Catalina, but everything through Mojave all in one app. So, which is great. Yeah. All right. Um, speaking of nuking and paving, John, I wanted to share, I've been uh, thinking, you know, about this new iPhone that is uh, probably already have, certainly has arrived by the time you folks are hearing this episode, except for everybody at live.macgeekab.com. But, uh, but hopefully has arrived while we've been recording this episode. And then I have something to do this afternoon. Uh, I will find something else to do, obviously, if, I, if it hasn't. But uh, I've been thinking, and with this phone, I have, I, with all my previous iPhones, and I can't remember when this was not the case, I have just migrated from one phone to the next, taking all my settings, all of my apps, all of my data, all of my cruft, everything with me. And I am ready to start fresh with this new iPhone. I, and the more I think about it, the more I think how pain, relatively friction-free it will likely be because everything's in the cloud anyway, you know, and, and this way I'll just download the apps that I want. It'll give me the opportunity to set up home screens with the new iOS 14 thing without dealing with the, the legacy that I have created over the years. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about starting fresh with this phone. I know your, your phone, because you're going for the mini, you don't, you'll wait a few weeks, but have you given thought to what you're doing? I'm assuming with your iPad, you're starting fresh because but maybe not, but, uh, have you given thought to what you're doing with your iPad and, and, or your new phone? Yes. Um, so the iPad, which actually arrived during the ad break. Oh, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a note of, well, I, and I had to do a release because by default, when Apple ships you expensive things, they have, yeah, no, the whole ordering process was really, uh, really pretty, pretty good. That's great. And that, you know, they're like, yep, it's on the way from UPS. And they're like, you know, here's the tracking number. And you go to the UPS site and, and it's like a uh, signature release. Do you, do you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, I live in a 
Well, we, we've we've had cases of porch pirates. Of course. I'm, I've, I've never been a victim of mm. uh, someone stealing stuff. So. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I think for, what I'm going to do. For mine, I did not. Like I, I did not have to choose that option. It said it will be contactless delivery and it, mm-hmm. it's listed as where they're going to drop it off. Like, you know, following my normal UPS instructions. I mean, I realize yours is an iPad versus an iPhone, but price wise, you know, they're in that same, you know, thousand dollar ish range. Right. You know, so yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm going to do, my plan for the iPad is to restore from my iCloud backup. Okay. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to inherit and your then, own cruft. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then move the, uh, move my, uh, data SIM, of course, which, uh, I actually did top it off. Good. Yeah. So, uh, and then, yeah, go move, move my, uh, 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 data SIM over to it. And cool. that's it. The phone um, I, I was looking up what I, what I'm going to do with the phone. The thing is the, the newer phone has a uh, eSIM. So I think what I'm going to do there is decommission my eight and then have the new phone suck all the data out. Migrate it over. Right. I mean, they have instructions on, on how yeah. to go about it, but it is an option for the, for the, for the 12 is to move from a physical SIM to an eSIM on that. Right. You could do that with the 11 as well. Um, okay. But let, let's, so I, this is a good conversation to have. So um, I had figured that I would stick with a physical SIM like I have in my 11. And the reason is I like the flexibility of my eSIM not being used right because you have you you can do dual sim in the 11 and the 12 right and the mm-hmm. but but for the us based phones the dual sim option is one physical sim and one e-sim and mm-hmm. i thought about this with the 11 and and i was I, I hadn't rethought about it with the 12 until you just brought it up but with the 11 i've kept my physical sim for as my you know main sim and the e-sim is the the open slot if you will and I've always kind of liked the idea of the eSIM being my open slot because it means if I travel somewhere that I want to use someone else's data or whatever, I don't have to then go and procure a SIM locally. I just assign that to the eSIM. Yeah, John, they're coming to get us. They don't They don't like this. No, they're getting the porch pirates. I guess that's what they're doing. <laughs> Uh, that's a fire engine. Okay. Well, the fire, they're sending the fire engine, uh, fire department after the porch pirates, but, um, <laughs> so maybe somebody had a run in with one of the porch pirates. Anyway, uh, mm. the, I, I figured having the flexibility of the eSIM would be, would better serve me if I, if I want to, if I want to do that. So, so that's, that's kind of where, that's where the questions are for me. Uh, I realize not every carrier is eSIM compatible though. So I, I limit my carrier options in terms of that traveling flexibility and gain the, the flexibility of the being able to do it without having to go and like to a store and procure a SIM once I, you know, I'm on a plane that lands or whatever. Um, 
we are seeing in the chat room, though, a very interesting mm-hmm. thing. Both Alan567 and Kenny and NG said, uh, Alan, Alan says, use caution if you use dual SIM. You won't be able to use 5G. And Kenny offered mm-hmm. some clarification. He says, T-Mobile told me to use the new SIM card or 5G won't work. So we, we obviously need to dig into this there, but it sounds like maybe 5G is only going to work with um, the physical SIM and not the eSIM. And that would be an interesting, uh, I mean, you know, the SIM does bring capabilities with it. There is no question there. So that that's something to look into. Thank you, Kenny and Alan. That's great. We will, we will dig and get back to you. And of course, if anybody else knows, please do let us know, we, but we will. We will do our own digging. So, hmm. yeah. So this is a, a good. I may pop into my Verizon store. <clears throat> or just call. Fortunately, we have a, a local. You know, oh, avoid the, it's, it's, avoid the, you know, indoor, you know, crowded COVID fest of being inside a store. Uh, right. I mean, that's, I, that's my hmm. approach these days is if I can avoid being inside, mm-hmm. you know. You might be able to get even just chat them online and then, and then, you know, it's all, you can be doing other things. Yeah. So, anyway. But my thought with the phone was that, uh, I, I like the option. So the reason I, I was considering using the eSIM is that I want to use the eSIM, but have the option to use the SIM in my iPad if I wanted to. Right. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could. Right. Right. If if that if that is a more likely to be used scenario for you than say traveling mm-hmm. to another country where you would want that sim, then absolutely. Then yeah, mm-hmm. go that route. Like assuming that all else is equal and there's this five G thing is solvable with with the eSIM and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Then yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 Yep. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks everybody. This has been, uh, this has been enlightening, hopefully for you as well as for us. We, uh, we all like to learn five new things. We love, we love doing the show. We love, uh, the, we love the, the community that we have here. So I always ask something of you folks, uh, at the end of the show. And this week, really uh, what I would like to ask is just tell somebody else about the show. Spread the word of the Mac Geek Cab family. Tell people they can get their questions answered here. That's, it's really an easy thing. It's like, hey, if you have questions, you know, send them to these guys, and uh, and you know, and then yeah. and then you're good to go. Like, it's a beautiful. And thing. And another way you could you could interact with us is uh, there's this Twitter thing, which uh, everybody loves Twitter because it's it, it's so easy to to get informed opinions about all sorts of things on Twitter. You know, I, I have my Twitter feed filtered down so that that is exactly what I get. Um, mostly it's tech stuff. So, you know, but that's what that's mm-hmm. all you're going to get from us is tech stuff. So, yeah, Matt Geekab on Twitter for sure. Yep. And there's also me, John F. Braun. There's him, Dave Hamilton. Uh, you mentioned, yes, uh, the Matt Geekab. There's also Mac Observer and Pilot Pete. I talked to Pilot Pete Twitter. the other day. He's doing all right. So... I also want yeah, to think. Like, he, Go ahead. Well, no, he's he's, yeah, I guess busy these days. He's been busy. Keep those supply chains moving. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. 
Uh, I do want to thank everybody that is a premium subscriber. You can learn more about that at MacGeekUp.com slash premium. But in a nutshell, it is a path, a way for you to offer direct support to us if you like and if you are able. It is certainly not mandatory, but I'd like to thank everybody who is part of that program. So it's been about a week and a half, I think, since we've thanked people. So in that week and a half, the contributions have come in from and we would like to thank. Thank you to... Uh, Andy here in Durham, Bob from La Peche, Timothy from West Windsor, Jed from Jersey City, Timothy, a different Timothy, from Hendersonville, Steve from Santa Fe, Brian from Danbury, Jim from Santa, no, Jim from San Jose, Scott from North Little Rock, Andrew from Palmdale, Santiago from Palm City, John from Wake Forest, Richard from Galesville, Chris from Chorleywood, Ken from Honolulu, Laura from Spokane Valley, Chris from Nailsworth Stroud uh, in Gloucestershire. I think I've got all that right. Uh, Steph from Chicago. Jim from Vancouver. Rob from Adena. Mike from Derby. Keith from Edmonds. Beth from North Coachon. Yeah. James from Scoresby. Anders from Vosteras. Joe from Austin. Robert from Pontesbury. Peter from Rochester. James from Port Alberni. Jürgen from Wilderstadt. Brian from Johnson City, Michael from Robbins, James from San Diego, Matthew from Forked River, David from Mount Prospect, Scott from Bourbonnais, Clive from Burgess Hill, Deborah from Houston, Dave from Saugerties, Dominic from Luxembourg, David from Plainsboro, Jeff from Chesterston, and uh, Lyndon from Seven Oaks. Oh, Frank from Tunbridge. Thought I was at the end, and I was not. And Michael from Wake Forest. Thanks to all of you. You rock so much thank you thank you thank you um and of course you all qualify for the uh to use the premium at macgeekup.com address for your um for your emails and questions and all that good stuff we do tend to prioritize prioritize that but this week we got through everything so woohoo everybody everybody's covered i think so yeah good all right you got anything else john before it's time to uh time to wrap this up no, I'm uh, just uh, excited about uh, having a, a new uh, new iPad. I know you got your new toy. Mine has yet to arrive, so which is not surprising. UPS generally hits our area in the evening, so it'll be it'll be oh. well into dinner when I'm sure when mine arrives. It's been typically the case. So, all right, thanks everybody so much for listening. Thanks for all your questions and your tips and your cool stuff found. That is. You know, you are a huge part of the family. Really, just listening makes you a huge part of the family. Adding in all the the questions and everything, really, it's just, it's awesome. We love being able to do this. Thank you so much for everything. And, uh, you know, stay safe out there. Be be careful. Thanks. uh, Make sure to check out all our sponsors. MaxSales.com, Nebiaget.com slash MGG, PlushedCare.com slash MGG, Eero.com slash MGG, Barebones.com, SmileSoftware.com slash podcast, Lino.com slash MGG. Again, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And whatever you do, don't get caught. Made up.